<laughs> what? <laughs> it was uh, it was such a great conversation. It was so great. People are going to love it. Now, um, I feel like I should say at the beginning of the show, which is weird because we're doing it, this out of time. End, it feels like end. a Christopher Nolan movie in some way. Exactly. Uh, we we do time this. travel. Um, I, I'm looking at an empty glass here, Joe. Yeah. Um, not a small glass listeners. <laughs> well, it's, it's an appropriate glass. It, yes. Before we, before I hit record, this was, I won't say full, but, but half full. Yeah. Of listener Paul's wonderful, wonderful talisker, which is like, it is the nectar of the gods. It, yeah. That and the cappuccino, I think are now the world's greatest drink. I think now talisker for me has achieved the level of being equal to the cappuccino. Wow. That's saying you know something. What, you know what that's saying. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, well, it, and it just helped um, facilitate a jolly and enjoyable conversation. <laughs> well, we'll see what the listeners think. This is, a li- this is much later than we usually record. <laughs> yeah, that's why. Yeah, yeah. This uh, is not and, 10 in the morning, listeners. No, I'm not hitting the and, talisker at 10 a.m. Right. And um, it's, a, you know, it's a warmer day, so that's got... The juice is flowing, and yeah, it's mm-hmm. great. It's a spring day. It's a lovely day. Do we have any follow-up before we jump right into things? Listener Dennis. We, yeah, we... we <sighs> he had mentioned two ideas. One idea we've talked about before, yeah. and it's the we, Will we Bob mentioned, yeah, yeah, go ahead. op-ed. Yeah. Um, so we don't need to talk about that anymore. But uh, the other the thing, King Dennis... versus Burwell case, which, yeah. You, yeah, we don't even want to say the words, um, do we? And the, uh, but the other thing Dennis talked about was he, he expresses some uh, regret <laughs> in hearing that you're going to devote some of our airtime to your Apple enthusiasms. I had, it, it, yeah. And, and, uh, and you said Apple Dennis makes is, people crazy. <laughs> when they hear talk about Apple, it makes them crazy. Yeah, otherwise very rational people. By which you meant what? Very smart people. No. <laughs> They're making the crazy. <laughs> I mean that um, uh, that that there is, uh, in this case, an irrational denial of a kind of exceptionalism. Um, and, and that um, our inducements to be rational with respect to, uh, which means being moderate with respect to our evaluations of you know businesses we all perceive as being basically on the same model, right? Mm-hmm. That they operate on the same model, and to suggest that a business doesn't operate on that same model is is it you know is is a kind of a risky proposition, and it's an immoderate proposition which kind of flags you as as being naive, right? And yet the the um and and so all the incentives are to say that businesses basically operate on the same models, and therefore there's this these ups and downs and they have the same kind of agency problems that et cetera, et cetera. They all have the same interests, maximizing shareholder value, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know what I'm talking about, right? I do. Um, all of these lead you in the same direction and that direction has been wrong for two decades uh, for Apple, but we're not going to get into it now. And I don't know if, we, I don't even know if we will talk about it, but, okay. um, uh, but listener Dennis just wanted to uh, needle me a little bit. Yeah. He wanted he's, to He's a former you. student. We actually had a personal conversation about it. <laughs> A few weeks ago at the, uh, no, I guess a week ago now at the uh, SCOTUS Group Alumni. Cool. Thing that I had. So um, shout out to listener Dennis. I really enjoyed your email. Um, enjoyed hearing from you. Uh, I, I hope you'll needle me again. Awesome. What else we got? Oh, that was it. Really? Yeah. D- do you know that we have another gift on the way? R- no. Yes. Come on. I'm not kidding you. You're just exaggerating. I, I, no, I'm not. I'm not exaggerating. Is this an April Fool's Day thing now? <laughs> 
No, we are recording this on a Wednesday. Normally, we record it on a Friday in the morning. I, I buckle down. I listen through the show and, and, and right. you know, do what I have to do. And then it comes out Friday afternoon. But, but it's Wednesday, April 1st. So I right. think this tale of another gift is just that, a tale. No. Um, do, do you know what John Gruber calls uh, April Fool's Day? No. Internet jackass day. <laughs> <laughs> there are some really good spoofies, spoofs and jokes and yeah, things I don't on know. the I internet. I feel like the law prof world is like five years behind in internet frontier world. Okay. Like, like five years ago, like, like it was maybe cool to be making up all kinds of crap on April Fool's Day. Whatever. I don't know. It just seems just to me. such a fogey. Yeah. You what can, can you, you get to? Can you, know, you get back? You know, you know, NPR for years has done like one story on oh, really? April Fool's Day. Like the, they had the one about the pipeline from Seattle to New York, which carried Starbucks beans. <laughs> 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 tell me your, tell me this, uh, this fairy story about a gift well, being on the way. Apropos of the NPR story, I am told on reliable authority that we have some home roasted, freshly roasted coffee beans in the, in the mails. As wow. they say in the Supreme Court. The Supreme nice. Court usually says in the mails. You know? Nice. Yeah. To us, um, which will be arriving tomorrow. Would have arrived today, but I was a little bit slow on the email reply wow. uh, about address and everything. So. Mm. Um, so next time. Well, that's exciting. Very exciting. And so nice, right? Very nice. People are very generous. I'm just so glad I've got a lot of this talisker left. It's, there's a great <laughs> reciprocity. It's like we do this and right. others do... F- things for us and there's a wonderful sharing <laughs> that's true that's exactly right um i yeah I, I i'm 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 grateful me too i don't know why i, I know, you don't know why you're grateful i don't know why people do nice things for us <laughs> after we inflict this on them every week <laughs> but but i have to say this is a really great show this is a super fun guest dave fagundis who's talking to us about uh right wait did we is it fagundis yeah it's Fagund- not Oscar Wilde's De Profundus, it's Dave Fagundus. Okay, there we go. All about standing in line. Why do we do it? So great. Uh, um, anything else, Joe? No. Let's go. All right. Oops, there were two more things, Joe. Super quick. Hey, get that microphone back in front of you. No, I'm not talking to you. <laughs> One is that um, the uh, Supreme Court decision in the Armstrong case that we talked about with Steve Vladek came down. And I'll link that up. And and Steve has uh, already um, got a response up on Prof's blog. Let's just say that the decision was not um, not perfection in Steve's eyes. <laughs> <laughs> See, you're way- <laughs> he just already pushed the microphone far from himself. He's he's ready to go. You've got a neck thing, right, Joe? I do. I yeah. have all kinds of problems. All right. Uh, the 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 other um, the the other feedback we got was um, uh, was from. Uh, Actually, someone who's related to me, listener Jay, um, says, any chance you'll be discussing the new law in Indiana? Would love to hear your thoughts. Now, listener Jay, I have some thoughts. I'm not going to share those right now, though. What do you think, Joe? Another time? Uh, yeah. All right. We'll, we'll deal with that next time. But, um, but, but, but getting that out, that, this is a kind of commitment device for us, Joe. Mm. We will talk about the... Indiana Religious Freedom Restoration Act issue, either in follow-up or in something else on on a future episode. Sure. Okay. Uh, But for now, on with the show. Hey. Hey, Dave. What's up? Why can't I see you guys? 
Oh, uh, <laughs> we never use video. We don't use video. We just do oh. audio. Just, oh, yeah. Okay. That maximizes the audio quality. And, got uh, it. Got it. Got it. Either that, or you look like uh, the Skype Skype icon, which would be like quite a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't we don't hold up cardboard printouts of the Skype icon in front of us. That would be that would be freaky. So, Dave, when you're trying to get something to rhyme with your last name, what word do you use? <laughs> There are a number of uh, fun word plays people have had with my name. Um, when I joined a law firm, people used to say, now there's a Fagundus among us. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And then you can imagine all the sort of like schoolyard taunts that went with my name, right? That, that get from fungus to far more off color for this kind of setting. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just let your mind go down that path. Yeah, you it, it's, it's the, um, the first syllable which lends yes. itself to, um, yeah. That syllable was hard in the seventh grade. <laughs> Let me tell you. Um, yeah, the worst I ever got was, uh, are you Jewish? Hmm. Oh, Christian. Yeah. yeah. No, oh. I'm Christian. Ah. Yeah. yeah. yeah and, and occasionally people would make, you know, would say something. I guess, I don't remember. Maybe they would say burner for my last name. But they never yeah. put like Christian burner together and made me out to be some kind of heretic or Satanist or anything like that. That oh. never happened. So I don't... Well, Burner sounds good, right? I mean, it means, you know, you, you could be like, you know, ripping it up or like you're, you know, I don't know, yeah. it sounds positive. Yeah, yeah, especially since the uh, rip, mix, burn culture of the early there 2000s, yeah. I mean, Christian Burner in the era of ISIS, <laughs> that doesn't sound so great. Oh, no, that's, you know, right. yeah. no, it's not funny, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that, yeah that's bad. Thanks a lot, But it, in the era of, you know, Florentine uh, holy man Savonarola, like for the Florence history buffs, that would be kind of a great, a great little wordplay. All right, and this is now... I don't know, episode 29 in our continuing effort to <laughs> decrease the size of our listenership. For, for the record, I, I can't even pretend that I begin to understand that reference, but it sounded very erudite, so well done. <laughs> I don't even know. I don't yeah. even know anymore. Um, uh, Savonarola is associated with the bonfire of the vanities, if, I, if I've got my history correct. Uh, he, so he, he burned lots of people in Florence uh, at the stake. No, that's so a, he was, in fact, a Christian burner. That's a Tom Hanks movie, right? <laughs> yes. yes yes and uh tom wolf novel that's right so yeah. i think so you're thinking of turner and smooch no i think you're thinking of apollo 13 mm. Mm. or maybe or wait maybe that's the right stuff <laughs> i don't know it all all goes together um so this is this is all being recorded for the podcast oh yeah of course this, no no i'm gonna don't worry i'm gonna edit all this out i edit i <laughs> i, I, I distill all of this down to like you know a a fine like the finest balsamic vinegar. This is distilled uh-huh. into the best hour and a half <laughs> in, in the hour and 35 minutes that we have the record button hit, I guess. I don't know. Um, well, we're not going to waste any more time, though, because we've got so much to talk about. Right. Uh, this, I cannot, if I had to, if, if you had to ask me of all the articles that I've seen this year, which is the most appropriate for the show that we do? It's and, this one. And, and just as an aside, of course, by the show that we do, I mean America's Faculty Colloquium slash the world's foremost authority, on podcasting authority on on the law of speed traps. Correct. Uh, Dave Fagundes's, uh lines article, I think, would have to be it. Absolutely. I mean, how perfect, especially with the uh, the seat recliner thing. We've covered that, you know. Oh, yeah. We cover oh, yeah. all the hot topics on this show, Dave. I don't know if you're a frequent listener or not, but, um, but if it's a hot legal topic, we kind of cover that from people reclining in their seats. Right, to, uh, speed traps. Because to... nothing's as smoking hot as the knee defender. I mean, hey, that thing was that's... on fire. 
when I would when I presented this paper, I I, I refer to this I, I refer to the seat reclining thing as the great issue of our time, and I said that the first time because I expected people to like think of it as an ironic statement, but I just got these like serious wide eyed nods, like yes, that is important. <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of depends on the circles in which you travel, yes. you know, um, and and law professor circles, you know, especially people who travel a lot, you know, airline things are a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's part of, you know, a little yeah. bit of the elitism of our discipline in a way that, um, yeah. you know, but I guess you could have the need defender in other circumstances too, but this, the lines article that you have applies, this is a universal thing. It's fantastic. Oh, yeah. No matter where you are, no matter what your kind of, uh, uh, no, ma- no matter what your economic situation, no matter, you know, where you are in the world, um, the norms may be different, but there is this essence there of having to stand in line. This is a, this is a universal article. I think it's also especially an especially great honor that we have with us a guest who is uh, responsible for, uh, hands down, the best Law Review article title in the last 50 years. See, now, now, wait a minute. Before you say what it is, I think you do it a, disser- you do it a disservice by first mentioning the title. No, I'm talking the about the title's that. good. I'm talking about Wait, that I, other can paper. I inter- you guys I, I, are clearly asking about state actors as First Amendment speakers, right? I mean, that's a blockbuster <laughs> title. Well, as <laughs> as the author of a state action piece myself, you know, I you know, I don't want to. I, I feel conflicted from from uh, judging on that. I'm uh, Joe's talking. I know about the talk derby to me piece. Absolutely. About, uh, ro- but I think that the best thing about that piece is it's a it's a roller derby article. Yeah. Well, right. There's that, but that that can be improved on only by. It's title. Yeah. Which is bar none, not even close competition, the best law review article title in five decades. All right, Dave, lay it on us. What's, so what's the title? So wait, what was the, what was, oh, it was a uh, talk derby to me. Wait, what was the one that was really good six decades ago? Was there like a better one from the forties or? I'm just, I'm, I'm just talking about what I can remember. <laughs> I, love oh. it that, I love it that you're not content to uh, be the king of the last six decades. No. Right. <laughs> I think, I think Joe's thinking of maybe the path of the law. Yes, that, yes. Mm, classic. Yeah, classic it is a title. classic. It's not a particularly good title, but yeah, it is a classic. That's true. All right, well, let's let's dive into this thing. So, um, so this article is is really it really is about lines standing in. Now, first of all, is it? Uh, <laughs> it really is. It re, I mean, it really and it's is awesome. Um, the first things that we have to there are two there are two dimensions of the linguistic problem here. One, do we call it a line or do we call it a cue? Mm. Right, and that's more of a which side of the pond you're on issue. I think. And the second is, and this is an, this is an intra-American dispute, mm. kind of a, a civil war, if you will, of linguistics. Oh, my. Is it standing in line or standing online? Ooh. Yeah. I think yeah, you're the, you, a... you are now the expert on lines, so you will, you know, your, your view here is definitive. Yeah. So um, I, got, I got no problem with lines versus cues. I just used them both in the paper for linguistic variation because I was using one word so many times I needed another one. Um, and then for the inline online thing, I read about this. It never occurred to me that people say standing online to mean standing in line, which I think means I'm not from the Eastern Seaboard. Because if I'm not mistaken, that's uh, a sort of New York, Philadelphia regional usage. Is that right? It's certainly familiar to me from growing up in Connecticut. Uh, okay. So yeah, yeah, online inline uh, to no, me they sound the same. No, wait, what what? So st- standing online sounds reasonable to you, Joe? Or to or you know, are you online for that? Be online now. I, yeah. I think I think now in the in the sort of the web era, it's actually uh, an ambiguity that it didn't used to it didn't used to provide. But now that now it provides an ambiguity. Actually, 
right, right, right. But for being a, but being a kid, you know, standing in line, standing online for something, same thing. So wait, that that that's that sounds horrible. I'm, I feel, yeah. <laughs> I feel sorry so, for you being having been raised that way, especially when so so when America Online came out. Like you must have had nightmares <laughs> about like yeah this everyone's like, queuing up everyone's queuing up everybody yeah yes. that's the worst slow yeah right that's the worst association ever because it makes it sound like it takes forever to get on the internet or to download something especially because that was probably circa 1995 when it was true yeah. so exactly. yeah yeah so it I makes didn't it, even think of that makes it sound like the 1978 gas crisis mm-hmm. like boy America <laughs> really is online <laughs> to get the yeah. gas but it's a weird um it's a weird variation because. You know, if somebody had said to me before I started working on this paper, what does a queue mean? I would say, oh, yeah, well, it's not an obvious, you know, it's not a usage I would default to, but I certainly know what it means even outside of context. But if somebody said, what does it you know, mean to wait online? I would say it means that you're speaking incorrectly, right? right. Um, but then, so it's, so it's not, it's a usage that like a small geographic, in a, in a small geographic area is considered completely legitimate and commonplace, but hasn't right. really penetrated outside of, right. and, and I'm only saying this based on reading it because I never really heard people use it, but I saw a couple references to how New Yorkers in particular adopt online as like a regional colloquialism. Yeah, this I, is sort I of like the hoagie grinder hero. That yes. I mean, there are some things like there's also in it's Portland, pop and soda. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's a, in Portland, Oregon. Um, they, they instead of saying pricey, they say spendy. Yeah, uh, and that was quite alarming to me. I heard when that I first, first in Seattle there. as a grad student. Yeah, that yeah, was quite yeah, alarming. Yeah, that was what. Um, that's a term that Courtney Love used when she described why um, she didn't like the Lexus that Kurt Cobain bought for her in like the early '90s. She said it was too spendy, and that's the first time I heard it. Yeah, yeah, we were out there kind of bumming around and climbing out around that area, and we were, you know, we meet uh, like other backpackers and stuff, and they would always use the word "spendy" for stuff. Yeah, and I didn't yeah. know if it was like a like a hippie grungy backpacker type thing, or if that was like <laughs> a, a nope. true colloquialism or, or what. But you know, like a like a regional one or just like a cultural one. Yeah. Well, there's actually um, I don't know if you guys saw this, but there's a great article I think it was on Slate or something, but it, it quizzes you and it says it says you know where are you like where are you from and do you have like a regional um, affect right and then after or it was the New York Times right and then you answer all these questions and it shows you a heat map of the United States that reflects the regionality of your dialect and so I, you could have I, think a, I saw that yeah yeah you could have a completely indifferent dialect you could have like no associations but if you answer you know a certain way it shows that you're like you know west coast or like you know southern or something like now, that. now let me ask you this dave when, when you take a quiz like that do you are you able to take it without um with without having in mind the result that you want you oh man I mean? oh man yeah no 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 because i'm totally biased because <laughs> i think of myself as ethnically californian right um and so when I was answering this, I knew what the obvious ethnically Californian answers were. So I didn't know, am I answering these because that's how I perceive myself or is that actually how I talk? It was, it was weird. I couldn't get out of my head on that so you one. Need so to yeah, have that, someone, you need to have someone else answer it for you. Like yeah. how, does, how does this person s- say whatever? Someone right. who knows you well enough to answer accurately or, you know, I mean, the perfect way to do this would be if you could have observations that weren't even in the context of a quiz somehow, right? You could just observe, you know, record yourself speaking and then the answers would have to be based on that and not on your consciously responding to test questions. But nice. then the publication's purposes would be frustrated because of course, <laughs> right. yeah, their purpose is to get you, you know, 
for you to get what you wanted to get out of it. And we don't want the truth. Mm. We, 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 actually, know, we uh, want it to tell us that we're from where we think we're from. This is exactly what happened. I was like overjoyed <laughs> when the heat map showed up and it was like California, Southern California, not Northern, but Southern California right. was like bright vermilion red and the rest of the country was like blank. I was like, this is exactly what I want. Now it took me 10 times to get there, <laughs> but that is the one I posted. Now to see team. for me, like I love the Pacific Northwest. Just love it. So um, uh, I, I would but like you're not to from think, there. No, but it's that's my spiritual home. Ah, and um, so so you know, if it said, you know, is it? Do you say spendy? I'm, I'm like, you know, my 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 the mouse is like hovering over. Mm-hmm. Yes, of course I say that. Of course right. I say spendy, but you I know that I don't. S- and so I'm I'm trapped. So the whole quiz is 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 anxiety provoking for me, Joe. Because mm. yeah. like Here, you know, here's why I have no anxiety. I what we just need to do is uh, encourage all of our students to play dialect bingo. <laughs> uh, while we're teaching and yeah. just make notes about what things we say while we're teaching. Yeah, 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 yeah. Put them to work for a change. I like that. <laughs> I don't even, li- I don't like to think that my students are observing me anyway. Huh. So I don't know yeah. that I would like that. <laughs> well, yeah, well it's, it's that or Facebook. So, you know, it's really, it's really a binary choice. Now, now due to no fault of your own, uh, Dave, I, we, we've passed the point of the show where we, we, we've now wheedled the listenership down to the core listeners now. <laughs> They're the ones who have stuck with us through all the all nonsense the that we've been pushing great. on. Yeah, exactly. Um, I feel like it's time to talk about your piece. This, yeah, man. Let's do it. Uh, and um, so, so it does. What's interesting about it is so you're writing about lines and, and, and the whole point of the piece is like, you know, why, why do people follow these? First of all, what are the rules of lines? Mm-hmm. Why do they emerge? Why do people tend to follow these rules without there being any kind of authority, you know, which is another word for, for law. You say, why is there order without law? The kind of question that people like Alexson yeah. have asked and that you've written about before and there's a whole cottage industry. And a whole... Neither authority nor a thick community of repeated interaction. Well, that's, that's what's yeah. new about so, this. Yeah, that's yeah. new about this piece. It's very right? important. Because in the roller derby, so you, you wrote a previous piece about, you know, why is it that with, in roller derby, they have these crazy, awesome names. And I think I actually saw you present this paper in, in D.C. years ago. That's at, very at the Alps conference. I presented it like quite a bit, yeah. Oh yeah, no, it was at the Alps conference in DC years ago, and it, and then this one, I, I don't think I remember a single other paper that was presented except for yours. And, um, <laughs> oh, I remember that. That was the first time I presented that paper, and I, I remember thinking like I have no idea if if it'll be taken seriously because of the subject matter. And I remember a lot of people were freaked out because I had to use certain names. I think were kind of like borderline. Like I had a you know. Uh, one of the skaters that I knew um, who had had some issues with her names was Marky, M-A-R-K-I-E-D, and her last name, Saad, right? And she was actually someone who had uh, was a professional dominatrix, right? So this is very <laughs> apt for her. Um, but I mentioned this, and I saw two people, like, kind of give each other a look, and then, like, one of them whispered to the other to, like, explain it, and there was this, like, light bulb <laughs> that went on, and, and not in a good way, right? And I remember thinking, like, is this just too weird of a thing for law professors? It's a fairly, you know, conservative group. But, um, yeah, I, I very much remember that presentation. That was uh, late 08. It's weird, though, right? Because in a way, yeah, it's like, you know, you worry about crossing lines and stuff like that, but, but we're, like, not at all conservative about this stuff. Right. I mean, you know, I, I, at least I don't feel that way. Maybe there are some, but I, I feel like it's a waste of time to worry about it, you know? Yeah. But it, I yeah. thought it was a great paper. And so the, the point of it was, right, that, you're, that you were adding to the literature about, like, communities in which there were norms, which were totally unenforceable. And here, you know, you couldn't trademark these, these crazy roller derby names, which are so much fun. By the way, the best roller uh, uh, derbyist that I've ever seen in person. Um, and the best name is Hella Blitzgerald, uh, who was awesome. And she she was our local Athens yeah. star for a while. Uh, one okay, of my I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna tell you, I don't I don't get it. Tell me tell me this the trick. I don't get it. 
Ella Blitzgerald, like Ella Fitzgerald. Oh, I get it. Yeah, got it. <laughs> you just blew Slow through. Yeah, no, no. That see, it was so exciting that you just blew through the levels there. But um, uh, the the um, uh, and I actually had a student who was on that same team, and and she was uh, Moral Dilemma, I think is what it was. Mm. It's, it's a cool little name. So they have all these crazy names, and 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 you can't trademark these under uh, under trademark law. I don't think even. I don't remember if you mentioned it in your piece, but I don't think even under various state protections you can do it. Um, it's it's slightly, I mean, I think it's slightly different. Um, there are a few roller derby skaters, and I'm actually writing an update, um, an essay in a forthcoming book collection that kind of updates uh, how the norms have changed in the intervening five odd years. But there were a few uh, skaters who ended up trademarking their names. And trademark's not the main thing I do, but um, my recollection is that stage names can be trademarkable even though sort of a casual personal name may not be. And so the real puzzle of the paper is, you know, given that law is available, why do they advert to norms instead, um, which has, you know, a lot of different valences to it. But that was that was how I framed um, that paper. So even if they could trademark it, I mean, I, mean, yeah. I, w- I would guess it's just much cheaper to to advert to community norms than to go through, you know, than to think that, well, my remedy, you know, don't steal my name. Otherwise, I'm going to file a an action in my local federal district court. I mean, that seems crazy, right? Yeah. Um, and plus it's, it got them nothing, right? What these people wanted was not to extract value from the uniqueness of their name in terms of like a brand, right? They had that what they wanted was status and identity within an informal communities. So the fact that they had a formal legal right under some state or federal law that could be enforced in court. Yeah. That, that, that didn't even, regardless of cost, you know, if trademarks had been free, I still think they wouldn't have acquired them. So, the, so there's this practice that results where you don't steal another roller derbier's name. Are, are they called derbiers, by the way? Um, so the, the term that I often, I typically use was roller derby girls, which they self-consciously used even though, um, you know, they were all grown women. Um, and then another term I would use was skaters, right? Yeah, but okay. derbiers, derbyists, I don't think anyone says Cause, that. Because they're also male roller derby leagues now there are actually by the time i finished writing this paper i had to go from it's an all-female sport to it's a largely female sport with a growing percentage of um men who do it the uh the national organization is the men's roller derby association or murda oh they just need an r on the end there yes right yeah or they need to you know have you assume (laughs) that you're in boston when you're saying it (laughs) (laughs) oh that's so great i mean i think these are some of the greatest events that we have in athens is our local roller derby team uh it's a perfect athens sport if if it were up to me this would be the sport in athens it's really fun i we would you know sanford stadium the big football stadium in the middle of campus oh yeah it would be converted into a roller derby arena there'd be eighty thousand people it would be awesome i'm all for it yeah UGA football, just roller derby. Look, I, people like what they like. I'm not criticizing other people's choices. <laughs> uh, uh, but if it were up to me, it would be ro- roller derby would be more popular than uh, UGA football. If it were up to me. Right I, this is another way the world would be weird if it were all me, right? True. Um, uh, so, 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 But there so, you've got a community that, that, uh, that sort of supports the norm, but lines aren't like that. Lines are just strangers. Yeah, before we get to lines, though. You want to, I just have a suggestion about, so you're going to write an update to this, you said? Yes. Yes. Okay. So, uh, clearly the name for this is, uh, talk derby to me too, colon, even derbier. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. I don't have a title yet, but I'm, I'm just, not really- that one's free. That one's, <laughs> just, we, we don't, we don't have a green room with gifts and stuff like that. So we just have to give away little, little things like that. That's a, that's like a, that. that one's like free. That. Yeah. I like, thanks. <laughs> 
Um, but okay, so Joe, you were actually saying something serious. Well, I was just trying to make a, I was trying to note a distinction between um, the Derby context. Fine, we let's not resort to formal law, but but we have important norms that matter to us and. And that that community is a community of people who are continuously engaged with each other over a period of time. And so it would make sense in such a context for people to have norms they, you know, uh, recognize and and affirm. And uh, but what about people who don't know each other, don't expect to be together again, don't really interact on an extended basis except for the time when they're in the queue? Why are they do? Why are they all doing this very predictable, very regularized behavior? And just to jump in and amplify on what you said, an individual skater is thinking, "Well, that name sounds awesome. I would steal it if I could get away with it. But I want to participate in this community. I want to be, you know, I want to enhance my reputation as a skater, which is the only reason I'm doing this. Right. And so I'm going to respect that, so that I'm not ostracized. And and well, I actually think it's funny because I actually that, that's think, not Dave's point in this article. I mean, but, but after yeah. you read after you read things like this piece, though, I it's, actually think that 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 story you just told, which was sort of a, a mix, a mashup of the sort of Holmes bad person of the law exactly, and yeah. and yeah. Homo economicus, yeah. skaters probably aren't thinking that at all. I agree with you. I'm just trying to set up the the, the kind of I want to be a jerk. Oh no, I'll get caught. I guess I can't be a jerk, right? The, yeah. The, if I can, if I can add one thing, I think I think that the, there are sort of two valences of any explanation for why people comply with norms, right? There's a sort of you know a positive explanation, which is that they want something, right? So this would be like McAdams' claim that people want esteem within a group, or um, you know. The younger posers claim that, that people want to signal uh, that they're good cooperators, right? So they're seeking to gain something, but what they're gaining would come from a community. Or there are just more straightforward, sanctions-based community enforcement explanations, like other members of the community will ostracize you. See, like, um, Ellickson's story like this, or Bernstein has um, accounts like that in, in her work. Yeah, now, so, Alex, Ellickson's is uh, cattle ranchers in the West, and Bernstein's yeah. has a couple, one of them, which is this... Uh, Diamond fascinating story of diamond, uh, the diamond industry, and and uh, yeah, so yeah, yeah, people yeah. study all these communities for different lessons, right? And yeah, go ahead. I, so I the point is that, that you know, I think it's the existence of a community, um, you know, could go in either direction, right? People could either have be inspired on this sort of bad man theory because they would cheat, but they just don't because they fear sanctions. Or there's a slightly different theory, which is that people um, want to gain something positive from the community. But all of those explanations assume that there is some community that either rewards or punishes their cooperation. So in the context of lines, what's distinctive is there's no community that would provide either the sanction or the benefit. And so it requires some other kind of explanation for the widespread cooperation. And that people who are participating in these communities are performing a kind of calculation, either explicitly or subconsciously, mm-hmm. about what advances their interests. You know, this is, you know, it's an extension. The other of, story you mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. It's a, and it's, it's an extension of the rational actor model that I have these preferences. I'm going to do better if I conform to what other people expect because I'm a repeat player for other reasons. Um, and and you tell, I mean, maybe to skip to the punchline, although I have a lot of questions in between, um, you, you tell a story which sounds, you know, right to me that this, you know, as I often say to my students, right, it's human beings that we're modeling here, right? Mm. And, and the yeah. rational actor model is an approximation of human beings which fails in predictable ways, right? This is, this is the behavioral law and economic story, but I, bunch of other different criticisms of uh, of the rational actor model are, are apropos as well and as to human beings it, it makes total sense that those communities which survived are the ones that 
where individuals had a desire or innate kind of uh, um, uh, reaction to others that that um, that that makes cooperation possible, right? Um, so, so human beings are are uh, like have, it's pleasing. Yeah, that well, means yeah. It, that means it happens more. That means you get the benefits of it more. They do it for un, for you know they, they don't consciously think of reasons. Right. I mean, yeah. I actually listened to this uh, Philosophy Bites pro- uh, podcast today oh, cool. about irrationality, which is fascinating. Right. Mm. And it's all about the extent to which uh, wh- what does it mean to be irrational? What does it mean to do things for irrational reasons? And part of it, is, part of it, the story was about, you know, to what extent do we refer to reasons when we make decisions? Um, and 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 what was, what impressed me about you? Well, one of the things that impressed me about your article was this this notion that um, uh that we are indeed we are modeling kind of human maybe even irrational conduct which leads to a kind of a social rationality you know what i yeah. mean like yeah like yeah. forming lines is it may be although we'll get to more specifics it may be the cheapest way of allocating a scarce resource where a lot of people want it depending on the resource right and so socially this is a perfectly rational way to behave why do people line up right and and you kind of reject the uh, homo economicus answers that people line up because they're worried about um, how other people will feel about them and, and uh, you know, um, uh, they're, they're maximizing their own well-being in a tight-knit community because people line up even when they aren't in a tight-knit community, right? Yeah, they typically line up in the absence of close-knit communities. Exactly. And so, so this may be just the way that human beings behave. You know, humans who lined up and exhibited other behaviors like lining up those are the humans which form communities which survived, right? I mean, if you want to give this kind of, again, this is a totally unreasoned, speculative kind of yeah. evolutionary psychology type answer, right. which I totally realize is open to all kinds of criticisms. But sure. but you open the door to that kind of thinking, that there's no particular reason to, exist on, to insist on homo economicus here, right, Dave? Yeah, that's right. And so I, I presented this paper at Tulane a couple weeks ago, and we got into this very issue, right? Because somebody who was sort of a an enthusiast of of economics was a critic of my framing of it, and was like, "Well, you know, this this could this isn't necessarily an irrational choice, right? Like it could just be that people have tastes for cooperation, and that their taste for cooperation is satisfied by the act of lining up." Right, even though we might regard that as a surprising outcome, and my answer to that is sure, right. But what I'm kind of framing the paper against is, yeah, the sort of simple 1980s neoclassical law economics assumption that we are always out to maximize our immediate self-interest um, in the simplest possible way, which would mean rushing to the front of the line um, regardless. The, and the, the wonderful thing about a preference satisfaction model of human behavior is that it can encompass every other model of human behavior by redescribing right. the way people behave as a preference. Right, right. <laughs> right? So this, this, this goes back to that, that behemoth of an article um, from the Harvard Law Review in like 2002, um, Caplow and Chevelle, right? Um, welfare versus uh, justice. And what they said, they said, economics or welfare can explain away every justice-oriented explanation. It's just that while the you know, choice to in, you know, honor some right despite uh, apparently socially negative calculus looks like people are prioritizing a right about social welfare, they're really satisfying their taste for justice, right? So it becomes, yeah, it's like the, uh, the theory that swallows all other theories. So, so this one, so I don't know, maybe we should start kind of at the beginning. Um, uh, 
are, are lines that different than other kinds of resources that people have to allocate? And, and, and why, do, why do they form in the absence of law, uh, whereas we, we use law we, – sorry. Uh, we use law to allocate um, other kinds of scarce goods like land and, and other things, right? And lines typically form around opportunities to receive something which may or may not be scarce. Um, mm-hmm. but where, you know, but which are scarce under some description, right? So Rolling Stones tickets, for example, or, or, or what you say, uh, Just going to the grocery store, going to the DMV, going one of the, to- one of the lines I loved in here, Dave, and this may, uh, uh, this may be slightly, this is my biggest criticism of your, uh, criticism of your article. Uh, you said, uh, cult bands like Pearl Jam or U2. Yeah. I don't know if you know that um, those aren't cult bands. <laughs> Did I use the word cult band? <laughs> you used the word cult bands. In All right. So, I mean, what, what, no, I mean, actually, I don't even like live music, right? So what, what, uh, what's the preferred nomenclature? In well, the, yeah. I just think that might date you a little bit. That's yeah. all I'm saying. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I totally yeah. get Cult it. bands like the Boston Pops. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, cult bands like the Rolling Stones. Or, or, anyway. Um, but uh, um, but you know what I mean, right? I mean, yeah, no, a band no, like, with like an unusually committed following, like exactly. a band that like inspires people to you know fly to another city and wait in line for eight hours and join an online community and etc. Right. etc. Right? Exactly. So, 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 so you know, Apple or the Star Wars movies, or I mean, these are things well, people will line up for for days. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but I think you should make a distinction between. Um, uh, lines which form around goods which are scarce and which everybody in the line won't necessarily get it, right? So the, the, uh. the, 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 the function of the line is to allocate a scarce good. And so, so the, the tickets, pro- that, that's true of tickets. Yeah, exactly. So the property right that you have in a place in line, the, the value of that place in line is not so much in the time you save by being in front of other people, but in your increased opportunity to receive a good that some people will receive absolutely and some people won't receive at all. Right. right. And that assumes that the good is sort of a binary thing. Like a, there's a finite number of tickets and you'll either get one or you won't. But exactly. that's true. For example, uh, the very famous study by man of people waiting for lot, um, tickets for the Australian rules football final in the late 1960s. Right. There's just a point at which some of those people won't get a ticket. So all the people in line have to make some kind of estimate of whether that's going to be them. And the funny thing is that there's, you know, there's some people who just aren't going to get it and who there's no rational story for whether they're going to get it. But as people tend to get to that stage, they all invent some kind of alternate narrative that justifies their standing in the line because they think people are going to drop out or they just radically underestimate the number of people ahead of them because otherwise it would make no sense for them to be there. Um, but I want to mention a different kind of allocation, which is that not all goods are lumpy in that way, right? You can imagine yeah. a good that is more... Um, uh, smoothly distributed. For example, a lot of what people wait for, I'm told in these concert settings, because I don't go to live music events, um, is space in the pit. And the better, the, so what you're really getting is um, a better space in line for closer access to whatever you know band you cult band you want to be near. Right. So if you're front of line, then you're like right up front and center. The farther back you get, the marginally less good your um, spaces but that's not really you'll you'll never really lose out assuming there's enough space it just means that every space in line means you're a little farther back as opposed to the tickets example where you could if as long as there's 70 tickets if you're 70 in line your place is as good as guy number one yeah but i i I would say that because i think there is another kind of standing in line which is different from that fundamentally but i i actually would put that kind of standing in line with the first in the sense that uh the reason that you 
that you're lining up and you have intense kind of interest in lining up is because the particular good that you're going after is scarce and lumpy, right? Mm-hmm. You either will get it or not, right? So you're really lining up to get a pit seat, right? Yeah. Or, 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 oh, yeah. Not, not seat, but standing area usually, right? Uh, no doubt. They're whereas, both scarce goods. They're just scarce in different ways. Whereas like a fabulously good ice cream, or I think you mentioned cronuts in the... Um, yeah. Which, uh, uh, which is not, you know... Uh, um, which is an actual food, right? This is not a. This is <laughs> no. I learned about cronuts because of this paper. Apparently, it's a yeah. cross between a croissant and a donut. And I've seen pictures, and I have to admit, the pictures look delicious. But it's a real food. <laughs> I'm not going to pay sixty dollars for uh, pastry. That's just ridiculous. Well, so, the, so, yeah. Well, the value of so so that sixty dollars is paid not to acquire an increased chance of receiving something that you might not receive at all, but to get faster access to the thing, right? Or, or to, to get access to the thing without standing in line. In other words, if you yeah. stand in line long enough, you'll get the thing, right? So yeah. I'm thinking of lines for, you know, like most lines that we stand in actually, right? Whether it's mm-hmm. the DMV, which you mentioned in the piece, or it's, uh, you know, just standing in line to, to get into a movie where it's not in danger of selling out, but you know, you have to stand in line for a few minutes. Right. So, so and one reason- You go to the grocery store unless you get there like two minutes before they close. I mean, go collect what you want, go stand in line, you'll get checked out. It's not- right. There's not a an inability to check you out because we checked out too many people today in right. the grocery store. You get you get to buy your stuff. Yeah, so that that's that's one element of it. It's like, what are your reasons for standing in line? And I think lines come in different types. But I, in this paper, though, you focus more on um, I think um, uh, the kind of the the intrapersonal interactions of people standing in line. Um, which is gets us to the knee defender stuff a little bit later, mm-hmm. right? And in this sense, I think you know. And you mentioned Carol Rose later in the piece, but not her um, possession is the um, uh, uh, what did she say? What's what's the name of that article? I'm blanking. Mm-hmm. Partly because I'm through this. Uh, I'm drinking Paul's Talisker right now. Uh, wait, is it uh, is it possession is the root of title? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. Right. So 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 what, what I immediately thought, you know. So I have some notes that I made when I was reading your piece, and, and like one of the very first things I wrote down as I got into it because it your piece spawns you know a whole bunch of different ideas is that lines are like a kind of property in some kind of opportunity space right Mm -hmm. so there's there's a space which represents an opportunity to receive something or to receive it well or to receive it early and and that property in a line is claimed by possession right Mm -hmm. so what you're possessing is not the physical space but you're you are possessing the physical space but that's really just the symbol for the opportunity to receive the thing in the way that you want to receive it right and so because so there's this ordinal ordering of opportunities that, and your space is that. Which is ordering. represented by the physical space that you're, yeah. op, that, that, that you that are you occupying, occupy. right? Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, Carol Rose's famous piece is all about how the reason why possession is the origin of title is that it, possession representing a kind of a physical connection to a thing communicates yeah. to others that this is mine and not yours, right? And lines are the physical communication of a very otherwise kind of ethereal property right, which is the right to receive this thing that not everybody's going to receive or not everybody's going to receive at the same time. And right. and as you point out in the paper, uh, Dave, I thought it was fascinating. Like you can just look at a line and see the, uh, you can see the whole uh, range of entitlements, right? So, yes. um, you know, I, I would think Henry Smith would be all over this, right? Because this is a very cheap way of observing who has what kind of entitlement and, and uh, who has what kind of precedence over the others in receiving this kind of property. Yeah. So uh, can I ask about the, the point you made just before that? Yeah. 
This is interesting because in the paper, I was actually, I just, I just opened it up on a computer. I talk about possession um, and lines, you know, in one context, which is, you know, there's a sort of one of the norms about lines is that it's very much linked to the act of physical possession. Because if you, if you leave the line, the, the very strongly understood social understanding is you have forfeited your space unless you kind of negotiate it or there's some kind of other uh, rule, like in an elaborate line where you can, um, you know, leave a place marker or something like that, right? I'm thinking of, when I think of possession, I think of the possession as, you know, your entitlement to a space in the line. But it sounds like you are suggesting that I could think about this in terms of an entitlement to the thing for which you are standing in line as well. I'm not sure that distinction is what you're going for, but it's, it's sort of what I, what I thought I was hearing. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly what I okay. think. I mean, I, th- I think the line is the, is the is the social method of allocation of the thing, mm-hmm. right? Right. And that the, so, so it's almost like a, um, a, a two-tiered property system, right? Where you yeah. claim a, a physical space in the line, but the reason why physical space is important is because it communicates something about priority in terms of access to the ultimate good, right? Right, and, right. and, and the value of your space is definitely derivative of the value of the thing you're waiting for. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, so, so in a way, like when I think of, you know, you mentioned later in the paper, you mentioned, hey, maybe smartphones uh, can come in and, and facilitate trades. We haven't, I feel like we're taking all this out of order because I have so many th- yeah, <laughs> thoughts we, about we this. We are but, taking it, and we have, it's, we're on minute 36 and we haven't used the word reciprocity yet. We'll, we'll it's get to killing that. me. We'll, You're we'll killing get, me. We'll get to that. But I'm just thinking of, <laughs> I, I've seen you, Joe has looked at the clock, like. I've looked over there like literally like 20 times because it's because it's making me nuts. Well, we have to start talking about reciprocity. This is, Joe, this is why people listen to the show, because I make you nuts. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the Joe rant is the reason. You know, oh, you don't want they that. Heard it, people haven't heard enough of that. Yeah. No, but uh, um, uh, uh, what, what I'm thinking, though, is that um, uh, that when you mentioned the smartphones, right, that, that, hey, maybe people, people could use their smartphones and that f- would facilitate like transactions between people in lines. And so, you know, if I really, really, really want to be earlier in line, whether it's a line which gets me an increased opportunity to acquire a good that I might not otherwise be able to acquire just because it gets me to the front of the line sooner, like we don't have a great reason normally, aside from egalitarianism, which we can get to for not wanting those transactions to occur, right? So a, a, an efficient allocation would be people who want the thing most or closer to the head of the line, right? And so you would think that those al- that those transactions should occur. And and so what the smartphone thing does is it, if taken to its extreme, would co- totally kind of dissolve the whole concept of the line, right? Because the smartphone interaction, the, the, you know, people would have these apps and they would have all these trades. Ultimately, it would just perform kind of a Pareto efficient allocation of everything, right? And and so the the person who wants it most through the smartphone interactions would get to the front of the quote unquote line, but of course there would be no physical line anymore, right? I hadn't thought of it that way. Here's it, here's, but I like that. But yeah, here's go, how go I ahead. thought of it. Yeah. Um, I thought of it as so the the one of the puzzles that I talk about in part three is why don't we we see certain kinds of markets emerging in lines, right? We've already mentioned in the context of cronuts proxies. We we haven't quite talked about VIP lines yet, but the one kind of market that you could certainly imagine emerging in lines and that you rarely, rarely do is people in lines, either people either approaching the line to say, hey, I want to be where you are. I'll pay you for your space or people in lines doing deals like which is which is which is sort of a variation of the first one. But somebody who's way back paying somebody way at the front to swap out for some price. Right. And, And we should see this. Right. 
the smartphone app idea, which I think I need to cut from this paper because it doesn't even have a whisper of a connection with what law is, although I think it's a decent idea. No, maybe I you got like, to keep that in. Maybe. I don't know. Um, <laughs> what I really want to do is try to develop this. I don't know um, how one takes a decent idea and turns it into an app. I should know that, but I don't. Um, so if a listener would like to contact me about that, you know, you, yeah, my email is well, dfagundas at swlaw.edu. But the well, point is... Well, no, Dave, Dave there, are, you know, there are these, uh, there is this crazy app that they had the Hong Kong protests use, right? That that mm. uh, doesn't rely on any essential thing and it coordinate. Anyway, maybe we'll drop a, a link to that. Go ahead. Sorry, yeah, I got you but, off. So, yeah. but yeah, no, I, I'm sure there are I mean, it's it's not far off from, I'm, I'm sure, other coordination devices. My thought would be that it would just be like a line enhancer so that you would eventually get lines that more accurately reflected people's relative preferences if you enhance their ability to communicate. And you also kind of facilitated, you like grease the wheels of this non-emergent market so that people felt less awkward about engaging in novel transactions. But what I think you're suggesting, and I think it's super interesting, is that eventually if people use this kind of approach, it might, uh, might, and I, I'm not sure it would, obviate the need for the line entirely because you could simply have people, um, people use an app instead of standing in line, right? Yeah, that seems to me the end point of, of reallocation. So if you have an app which reallocates and if enough people use this, then mm. the, the end point of that is that the line goes away. And, but what you're mm. suggesting is that priority becomes a sort of, uh, it, you're basically holding an auction. Exactly. Yeah. For the prioritization of participation. That's what right? I wrote in my note. Yeah. Um, but but it, what's odd to me about that is, and, I, and I, I mean, I understand it as a story in itself, but what's odd to me about it is... Um, <laughs> like and you posit that you know so the line wouldn't need to exist right which i which right. i agree with you it wouldn't <laughs> i mean in your scenario but w- this is all such what a pack of freaks who would do such a thing right it's like no we're sp- like you line up for this you don't have an auction <laughs> for it you stand in line for it don't be a freak well but that's so right if, so if it's, it's yes. which is in a way sort of with the where the knee defender thing got to with chris um Sprigman and and Chris Bacafusco's brilliant uh, little empirical investigation, yeah. right? It's like the big problem here. The the big reason why Josh Barrow is is a nutball <laughs> for saying be, be you could just pay me is He's because nutball, what, what yes, that I means is yeah. you're a big freak, I, right? You're not actually going to pay someone. It's because you're a, you don't understand human life. I hear that, but what I think you're describing is is what I call in the paper market shyness, right? The reason why you react to that as freakish behavior is simply because it is unfamiliar. Right. And I'm sure there are instances where people now have markets for or bargain about things that would have been socially unacceptable 15 or 20 or 50 years ago, where at one point people would have said, how bizarre of you to treat that as a market interaction. Right. It maybe it's product of gift exchange or bartering. And now we think of it as a perfectly appropriate place to bargain and to have exchange. And it's one of the puzzles that I, I sort of raise in the paper, but that I don't um, complete is, you know, what you know, what is this thing called market shyness? Why does, is it just the phenomenon that where market mechanisms are an unfamiliar way to allocate um, entitlements, we intrinsically resist them? Or is there some other way to describe the domain of this market shyness, right? Well, here, because here, 
Here's yeah, a theory. Here's a theory, and it's related to what would be my my only criticism of the paper, which is um, that reciprocity plays such a huge role in the first half, and then it disappears. S- say what mm-hmm. re- introduce the, the reciprocity notion of now. reciprocity yeah, yeah. that is just the, the sort of the social glue that creates the lines as a form of spontaneous order, even if there isn't a thick community or repeat play or anything like that. It's people recognize if I do this and then you do this, we're reciprocating with each other and it's beneficial and it's pleasurable, right? And that yeah. that creates the cohe- the social cohesion of the line experience, right? Recipro- reciprocity plays this huge role. So if you do in game theory terms, right? If you look at like prisoners' dilemmas and stuff like this, like tit for tat is maybe one of the better strategies that game theorists can kind of come in with that, right? So, but, but this, this reciprocity theory is that tit for tat where you, you know, if someone, if someone cooperates with you, you keep cooperating. If someone defects, then you defect to punch them. Right. Like this, this idea. So, so the idea that reciprocity is like innate in people is, is, is almost like an evolutionary uh, observation about how tit for tat has become embedded in human nature yeah, and, and for whatever think, reason. And I don't think one needs to make that strong a claim. You you were talking before about the sort of, you know, uh, uh, sociobiological explanations. Yeah, for we some don't of these know. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, we yeah. don't, it, it's possible, um, but I don't, I don't think one needs to make that strong a claim in this context. But what struck me about the paper in the, in the, in the part three, we were talking about where markets do or don't emerge is, I mean, I think, you know, there's not much discussion in that part of the paper, if any, of reciprocity. And it seems yep. to me we're not market shy. It's that we continue to be r- reciprocity seeking we consider mm. we can we continue to have a taste for reciprocity and there's something about m- markets that that can separate us and basically it's a, just a big buzzkill it it ruins the reciprocity it's you, you're not being you're not reciprocating anymore you're now kind of monetizing and one person is succeeding and the other is maybe succeeding or maybe not, or maybe there's like subordination or maybe there's, um, you know, I'm, uh, now I'm wondering, am I really getting a good deal or am I being a chump? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah. sort of, and suddenly it's not about reciprocity anymore. Let, let me, yeah, can, yeah. can I sharpen I like, that and then send it yeah. to Dave? So if, well, <laughs> I, I think it was sharpen, fine without your sh- help, but you go right ahead. Like, you know, it sounds dangerous actually. I, mean, I, only, <laughs> say, I only say sharpen because I've consumed most of the, of Paul's wonderful talisker that I yeah it's pretty impressive it, actually it, it's, that was a large glass was it it w- really was this is going to be an ex- <laughs> <laughs> listeners is this going to be an extra special episode then I guess <laughs> I, um uh so so even if I'm a, a a real law and economist like I could take a, like a like a Henry Smith approach to this and say look in a situation where it's very complicated to assign these things like lines are really cheap ways of allocating a scarce resource and observing the allocation of that scarce resource, right? I mean, it's just a, a really cheap way to do it. And and so the the claim would be that if people start bargaining over these things, it gets to be more difficult. It, it's more it's more expensive, like, to figure out. Mm, it's sort of a you, numerous clauses thing. It's yeah, exactly. Like, that's what you, I'm saying. You're creating too many forms of compliance, and, and so tracking those forms right. is too difficult. Because now, and, rather than, like, if I want to get something, I just show up early, right? right. I just show up early. But... But if I know that it's going to be this like weird, you know, I'm going to get there and then they're going to be trades, then I'm, I've got a whole separate set of considerations. It's the same thing we talked about way back in our episode with the, with the, with the, uh, recline, knee recliner thing, right? The knee defender thing. Um, that I think psychologically, it just seems weird to offer somebody in front of you money for something like that's, a, that's a, like a pig in a parlor to use the, right. <laughs> the old phrase, right? Uh, it's just the wrong, maybe the right thing, but in the wrong place. And one of the reasons why it seems like the, 
like it's in the wrong place is that this whole thing works cheaply because people don't do that kind of thing, right? And so psychologically, it feels like the wrong place to make that kind of offer. But maybe Dave's right that a norm entrepreneur could come along and sort of and transform the way people experience and live in this kind of context. And, and maybe because of the smartphone, right? Maybe there's technology has made it so that it's no longer. So it's not it, too the, complicated. Again, the it's line still is simple just a, again. Exactly. The yeah. line is just a means of Pareto efficiently allocating access to a good, right? And the minute it becomes cheaper to do something else, we'll transition there. How do we transition there? We use the line form, but a norm entrepreneur comes in and does something which totally dissolves it, right? Yeah, so, but that's here's but that's my problem is is it that that kind of undercuts the the initial impulse for forming the line. So you're saying something that could dissolve the line, but people are trying to get in line. So you have to it has to happen so early that it just like no, not only a, is there not no, a line it's like, anymore, it's like there's right. never a line. People just bid for things. I think if we argue a little bit more, it'll give Dave even more to kind of come in and, yeah. and set us straight on this. But <laughs> no, but but my claim is that that the uh, or my guess is that uh, uh, that you know you have a line. You get a few people coming in with this you know with with, with this technology, which has the potential to completely to get to the uh, the uh, a better you know more efficient allocation. And eventually everybody latches on to that means, right, which is the smartphone in this case or something else. And, and Dave, in the paper, you say that the reason that these trades haven't occurred up to now is it's kind of it's hard to make a deal with a person who's like 10 spaces in front of you or 100 spaces in front of you. And it's only easy to make a, a deal with someone who's a few spaces in front of you or even one. And that may not be worth the the cost of doing something really unusual in that context, right? That's um, one of the conjectures, yeah. 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 So how, how do you come down on, on, on this debate that Joe and I are having? Well, I, I, so it's really interesting, right? And I think as far as, okay, so Joe's initial point is maybe this just ruins the mood of the line and that, that reciprocity needs to play more of a role in this, right? And I think there may be something to that. So what it reminds me of is, I think it's Ariely and others have this distinction between, um, and now I'm forgetting the name, but like something like market norms and social norms, right? So there's there's a very good reason why we don't offer, um, uh, you know, you're getting invited over for a dinner party. And, you know, you offer the, you know, hostess like 50 bucks to cover the cost of the meal and she would be insulted. Right. I mean, we all understand that to be true. And I think the reason is that part of the value that people get from some interactions is the sort of atmospheric of altruism that pervades them. So the conjecture is, if I understand it, if we start introducing market norms into this non-market setting, then that will degrade the quality that lines have of, of sort of, you know, reciprocity and then there could be two social costs right one could just be the sort of atmospheric is lost and that's a bummer for people because they feel like suckers or there's social pressure to bargain or lines become more stressful but another is it could also dissolve the line structure itself because people could say you know now where we have a very simple understanding that you line up because it's polite to do that and you don't do anything else it's stable but when you introduce other considerations especially self-interested market considerations uh maybe that means people are going to be more likely to say well screw this if you're paying for x y or z Sounds like we have an every man for himself situation. So mm. I am no longer as inclined to be a, a reciprocator. I regard your market conduct as a form of defection that inspires me to defect, right? So there are at least two kinds of costs to the line that I can imagine flowing from this degradation in reciprocity. Um, I think that's totally plausible. Here's my major concern about it. It is not novel that markets have 
intruded into lines. And the example is the paid line waiting proxy. So the fellow in New York who has made this a very lucrative business says that people are, are totally cool in the gang with the idea of finding that those who are adjacent to them in line are not interested in the product and waiting for it, but rather they're paid to do that, right? And that as long as there's no sub-infudation, which is to say there's a one-for-one ratio between the paid line waiter and the number of people that they're going to substitute into the line in exchange for the money. I love nobody that word, by the object. way. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's, a, it's a property inside joke. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> yeah, nobody else gets it. But, um, <laughs> but, but yeah, so, so, so if I think it's a very elegant idea, I, I agree that that's a, that's a very thoughtful way that I could connect part three with more of the reciprocity stuff from earlier in the paper. But I don't know how that explanation is consistent with the increasing commercialization of lines in other contexts. Well, because it's still anomalous, right? The, the, the line waiter for the cronut um, I, I wonder if it would be, I wonder if the, the, the self, uh, waiter for the cronut would feel differently if they found Every out time you say that. that of 50 people waiting in line for the cronut, 49 of them had been paid to be there by somebody else. And one and only one was waiting on their own. I don't know what that, per- how that, whether that person would still feel really great about waiting okay. in the line for the cronut. So, uh, I have- so it could be that it simply, you know, it it just hasn't, the, the, the the market intrusion in the reciprocity filled line context is sufficiently small at this point and anomalous yep. um that um that we just don't have a good read yet on what it would ultimately mean i have two quick things to add to that okay one is um the perfect uh, a, what seemingly to me a, a really good analogy for this is um in uh david foster wallace's infinite jest and his story of uh, video phones have you ever read it? I have not. Oh, I've read. Uh, I've read in it, which we, is, we, this yeah. is a way of saying I got to page sixty, and then I was like, "Man, yeah. I don't have time for this." I, I feel. <laughs> you know what? I feel like we should hit the stop button right now, and everybody I, should go read, read this, and yeah. then we should talk again. I mean, um, yeah, in, in like in like a year and a half. Oh, right. no, it's so it's so good. Uh, no, I don't disagree. It's a great has, book. I've he, actually like I love parts of it, but I just you know. No, I, mean, I, I understand. I, I, maybe we, you know. Maybe one thing we could do, Joe, is we should do a you know we should do the infinite summer thing. We should do the 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 reading club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would you be in for that day? Uh, it's if, so... yeah. In an alternate universe where I had the time, I would totally do it. But wait, are you talking about what he calls the teleputer? Exactly right. Yes, so people started that. to wear these masks, right? And yeah. so, 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 hold so, on, what? So he imagines teleputer? this world before FaceTime and okay. Skype and all of this with video, right? That right. people start to have video conferences, and, nice. and and so eventually, you know, people wanted to look their best, but they just come out of the shower, they just woken up, and their hair is all funny, <laughs> and and so they end up getting these masks to wear, right? Okay. And eventually, it becomes this thing where everybody wears a mask all the time, right? So the, the and so your expectation about everything changes because of right. the behaviors that people predictably engage in, right? And and so that does seem like a, you know that there's a connection here with um, you know, if the norm is that everybody pays someone else to stand in line, and eventually you get just a like a whole line of like paid for like that's a it's a super inefficient substitute for what essentially has become an auction right right yeah. right and 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 so too if everybody's wearing masks and nothing is real the video conversation is a super inefficient substitute for what is essentially an audio conversation yeah. right and, and in fact a worse substitute because people are lying to each other in a way right <laughs> so it could and, be i mean the the, but, stu- the the postulate of you know is would this end in utopia or dystopia i i actually honestly just don't know but i i do think they've captured the two 
sort of at least the two versions of the argument where this looks problematic. Right? Well, the, the second point I wanted to make is is maybe a, a practical way of, of of making a kind of a stepping stone toward there is that you know in a situation where there's a, a long line and where it's a real just pain in the butt to stand in the line, just the physical act of standing mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Um, what is it that that keeps an individual in the line from standing up and saying, you know, hey, why doesn't someone run to the drugstore? We'll get some paper and we'll just all take a number, right? Right. Um, Which doesn't happen. But that, but he, I, but he or she would be a norm entrepreneur, right? Yes. And, and it does not happen, right? And so to to move to a uh, kind of a uh, a commerce or an auction regime, it takes kind of two steps, right? One, you have to have that entrepreneur who says, let's do something more efficient but different, yep. right? And two, you have to have someone who's willing to say, let's inject the whole wealth hierarchy, the whole rest, everything else about society that right. orders us. And let's inject sort of a, it into this particular thing. And it's sort of a Michael Sandel, like enough is enough, is enough already with the yeah. commodification of everything and the marketization of everything. Yeah. And, yeah. It could, and it could be that that's applicable here or it could be completely wrongheaded to think of it this way and that it could wind up, be, you know, everyone would be better off if we were using these alternative ways of taking lines and remaking them in the form of more efficient uh, pairwise exchanges. I, I honestly don't know. Could could turn out to be great. Yeah. Um, so this is super interesting. So this is an empirical question. We don't know the answer to it. Like what if we did a technological substitute for lines, right? So um, two things. Here's some evidence for why it would be a uh, utopia. There's a great article, you guys. Have you read uh, Lior Strahilovitz's article about the development of uh, carpool lanes in California? No. This is a great article because um, it's about the introduction of paid carpool lanes in, ex- in the place of um, free carpool lanes. So in, Cal- in SoCal, it used to be that if you had two or three people in your car, free carpool lane access. Then they changed it to an option where if you you could either uh, get into the carpool lane with uh, the requisite number of people, or regardless of the number of people in your car, if you had a, you paid for a pass, they would do like congestion pricing for you, mm. right? So the, the thought was in that case that people who um, are, you know, people who have traditionally made the effort to get into the carpool lane for free and maybe have less money, uh, and so they're limited to that, would resent the, you know, lanes. They call them, like, Lexus lanes. In fact, <laughs> in fact, the opposite turned out to be true. It was the people who, uh, the people who uh, didn't have to pay to get in perceived those who did pay as suckers. They were like, I'm getting this for free, right, but you're paying for it. So one story of, of the world where there's one guy waiting legitimately for a cronut and 49 proxies is he's like you all are lame right you're paying 60 dollars for something that i'm getting for free you're the sucker and i feel better about the situation right um here's the story where i think that may not be true one of the especially these cultural phenomenon things are a lot about like self-definition and identity so it's certainly true in like the star wars line right if you stood in a line for star wars a phantom menace for you know, whatever, three days, you were pretty obviously a serious Star Wars fan and so was everyone else around you. So you were like signaling and how so seriously di- And so, so disappointed. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say. <laughs> oh, it just makes my heart just sank. Anyway, did go you <laughs> Did you wait? Did, were you one of those people in that line? Uh, no, I didn't have to. I saw it relatively early on, oh, but okay. I, didn't, I didn't have to wait. But um, it also makes me think of like, um, I, wrote a, I wrote a blog post that I, like you know with no shame cited on the first page of this paper about pink's chili dogs where people will wait in la for like two hours but it's part of a cultural experience they're like 
it's fun after, I don't know, the club or whatever, um, or just, you know, a, a nice day to do this thing, which is you wait forever to get a Pink's Chili Dog. And there, I think it would kind of undermine the fun of it if people were paying for it. Because part of what people are doing is saying, this is a cool thing. And we're all in it together. And we're all doing this almost like irrationally nutty thing, which is spending two hours of our life standing on La Brea to get a chili <laughs> dog. You could probably get equally well in a restaurant um, because I've had Pink's chili dogs and they're good, but they don't justify a two yeah, hours. Uh, Dave, have you ever been to Yale? I mean, so a lot of our Yale no. listeners will know, will think of Sally's and modern and, and talking uh, about pizza and guy. Pepe's. Yeah. The pizza stuff. Yeah. Right. So, so you go to Sally's, um, which is clearly the best, by the way. Um, <laughs> Joe, <laughs> I'm just looking over at Joe to see if he's going to fight me on that. Um, nope. Uh, nope. And, and you might have to wait, like, you know, if you don't get in for the first uh, seating there, because it's a relatively small place. By the way, it's, it's the best pizza in the world. Um, but so if you don't get in the first seating, you got to wait until everybody else, until everybody in there finishes their, and it takes a while for the oven to go. Mm. And so, you might be waiting for like two or three hours oh my gosh. in line outside yeah. in New Haven, you know, in Connecticut. Um, and, uh, um, and, and I'm just thinking my, you know, I, I've stood in that line before. Um, and I, I, I was just thinking about what you said that if someone paid, you know, a professional line stander in front of me, I, I get. I think I would be kind of. I don't know if I'd be. You know, pissed maybe too strong, but I, it would be upsetting. But not because I think, you know, this is a cult. I love standing in line because this is just part of the thing you do. Like I actually wanted to eat the pizza, right? right. <laughs> I would have paid huh. more to to eat it earlier. But like it, it did. It does seem like 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 the the wealth hierarchy shouldn't be uh, entwined in that thing. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, what you said about La Brea doesn't doesn't ring true for that kind of line. Hmm. But yeah, it, 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 again, it could be there. You know, people are consuming very different kinds of products. Uh, we we started the conversation with the product that you either got or you didn't, and so your position in line was a proxy for uh, the real it. property you yeah. have, which is the property of basically a, a kind of an opportunity slash risk. You know, of of, of acquiring the good, yeah. right? And, and so too, just standing in line may be itself a good at some point. And you mentioned in the paper how. Yeah, you know, there are kind of communal interactions in line. Maybe the one you mentioned at Duke, which you may want to say something about. Um, oh yeah, the 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 pink's the pink's blog post is very much about that, right? Yeah, like, go the answer ahead. I ended yeah. up coming away with that was that you know people enjoy the experience of standing in line because it is sort of like an iconic LA thing to do. But I, I do think in that case, you know, what makes it an, a, a crazy thing to do is that it seems like it's irrational. Why would I do this? Right. So that if people started finding that 50% of the line consisted of people who had just bought a place cause they wanted the hot dog, it would kind of ruin the fun. Right. It would say like, Oh, like it, this is no longer, we're not all in it together to do this kind of loony thing. Instead, this is just more like a transaction. And if it's, if people are using this kind of cost benefit analysis, then it's really hard to justify standing this long. Also, it might not be as much fun to stand near professional line waiters as it would, <laughs> other people right because they're like all business or they're like you know writing you know on and, their and phone or something if, like if that people, if people were indifferent in that regard it would say that the hot dog place is dramatically underpricing their hot dogs <laughs> right. right because like they should be capturing all you know if you're only you know if you're willing to spend to stand in line to acquire a thing right yeah. and, and you don't derive any benefit from standing in the line itself right then it's not clear why you know the place is clearly undercharging um it, it, you know, well, I, at the very is, least, it's undersupplying. I mean, it could expand yeah. its output 
this was always my thing with Sally's. Like they've got that one oven. <laughs> like, why can't there be another oven? You know what I mean? Well, the, the scarcity is part of what makes people want to stand in line, right? Like it's it's so hard to get there. But in, in in pinks, I think that it's true. You can say, well, why don't you just cut out the line by charging $15 for your chili dog? But the point is no one at that point, I think they would lose their customers because no one's going to pay $15 for a chili dog, right? But there has to be some explanation for why people stand in line. And I think it's more that it's become... It's almost herd behavior, right? People yeah. stand in line mm. because it's an iconic thing to do after the clubs get out on Suns or in Hollywood or, or whatever, right? But then the twist is that, you know, I don't think it's actually an equal trade-off. I think if Pink's just said $20 chili dog, they'd lose out. But they do gain something great from this long line, which is we're talking about it, right? It's something that you see when you drive down La Brea. It's understood that this is a famous thing to do. And people infer from the existence of the line that it is worth it to stand in line for those chili dogs, even though, in my opinion, that's totally false. (laughs) So I think they actually get more economic value from the line than they would from just repricing their hot dogs. Although... I had the same puzzle when I started working on the blog posts. It's, time it's certainly true of Apple product launches. I mean, yeah, like however many people there are in those lines, uh, you know, if none of the people in the lines that you see in news stories bought iPhones, yeah, it, it would affect their bottom line not at all, right? Right. But that you know, the, the fact that there are a bunch of news stories about people camping out in tents in front yeah, of Apple stores, hugely yeah. valuable. They couldn't, you know. That would that's a yeah hugely valuable advertising for them. It right? is, and if yeah. you guys heard about, I just posted this on on my Twitter feed. Um, but it's an article I saw just yesterday of the solid gold iWatch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, right, <laughs> which which apparently is a line skipping mechanism, right? Because if you indicate to the Apple people that you don't just want to wait in line for the iWatch, but the solid gold iWatch, they will not make you stand in line, and instead will like take you into the store and give you like a VIP sales experience, right? So that's <laughs> a version of being able to pay to skip the plebeian Apple line for the run of the mill Apple watch. <laughs> and instead, you know, price yourself into this rarefied market. Cause apparently they sell like two per store or something. Is that right? I have now I've been, I am an Apple nerd and this is, uh, hmm. I think we're going to get to this in the, in the, in the, intro to the show, which we have not recorded yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. De- listener Dennis email, because I, I'm, I'm kind of an Apple nerd and I think I have good reason to be, but, um, d- listener Dennis disagrees. Um, but we'll talk about this. Uh, but but maybe this is a tip for oral argument listeners only. Mm. Just because you say that you're interested in a gold Apple Watch doesn't mean that you have to purchase one. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, you say, I've, I've enjoyed this VIP sales experience, exactly. but I've decided against it. It was a, it was a close call. It's like, you know. it's like test driving a Porsche. Right. I would now like my neoprene i6 case, please. <laughs> iPhone 6 case. That is all I'm here for. Now did, that I've seen the watch. Did they run a credit check before you test drive a Lamborghini or something like that? I've, you know, I've never been interested in, in car. Are you, are you interested in cars, Joe? We never talked about this. Like, do you, <laughs> now I know you buy one every few years because yes, you're that's weird true. that way. But like, right. you're, are you? You're not interested in fancy cars, are you? Uh, no, no uh, except in a very limited sense. Dave, are you? Do you? Are you interested? Are you, have you had like a Lamborghini fetish or anything like this in your oh, life? Oh man, I, I mean, I, I like I like a nice car, but the Lamborghini is sort of outside my pay grade. But is it the kind of thing that you dream over? Because if I no, dream, no, I'm, no, no, I, no, no. Like, not a sports I, car like that. No. Okay, so. For me, like a car is, uh, I'd rather not have any at all. Wow. I'm, I'm a weirdo that way. I'd, I'd rather yeah. not have one. Uh, so yeah. I, I get no joy from, uh, maybe from like a Tesla, like the nerdy stuff appeals to right. me, but the like engines and stuff, like I don't care about any of that. But mm-hmm. but the point is that a lot of people do and that, uh, y- you know, if, if you can 
I'm sure there are a lot of people who try to test drive these cars. Now, do they go in and do they lie about their preferences about this? <laughs> do they do a credit check before they let you drive one of these things? Uh, people do that for houses, right? There's tons of people who show up at like million dollar open houses who have no intention of buying them and they just wander on in. But that's a lower cost. That's like less of a loss for the real estate agent than yeah, you it would can't, be. Yeah, you can't carry away the house. I'm just, I'm just making an immediate connection here. But is that, yeah. is that attitude a little bit like queue jumping or not? You know what I mean? There's no, there's no line outside waiting for the Lamborghini, right? It would be like if, uh, you know, a bunch of people were waiting for a Yugo and you said, well, you know, you're all, you're all waiting, (laughs) but like, if you want the Lamborghini, then you don't have to wait in line. Yeah. No, there's so bad. Yeah. All right. Not that an iWatch is a Yugo. That's unfair to the iWatch. Please don't. (laughs) Sorry, iWatch. Well, we're definitely going to get listener mail from that. We don't know yet. (laughs) We do. We do. We don't know yet. We don't know yet. Um, so, uh, one other thing that you, um, uh, that you mentioned in the, in the piece is um, uh, that, um, that you know, you mentioned the different, these, I don't know, there are different countries which have different attitudes towards uh, line, lining up. And, yeah. and I, we haven't even mentioned, I've, you know, we've not gone through this methodically at all. No. Um, are, does this bother you, Jeff? Not at all. Okay, good. Hopefully we've gotten out most of, you know, we've gotten out a lot of the interesting questions about this. I Absolutely. hope so. But, um, but one of the things that you do address in the piece is that, um, you acknowledge that uh, kind of queuing up varies from culture to culture, um, whether you form a physical line or whether you just walk into a crowded area and ask who is last uh, in Spanish. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Like that's one way. And then, right. and then you mentioned in Switzerland, they don't, they, they tend just to kind of uh, elbow their way in. It's a weird deviation in a society that seems so devoted to precision and order, you know, the exactly. Swiss watches and everything. Yeah. Um, I actually spent the summer of 2010 um, and visiting at ETH, and I have some uh, friends and colleagues from there, and, and they were telling me, yeah, there's a, there's a weird antipathy toward lining up. In fact, there's a story, I might have said this in the paper, but I have yet to substantiate it, where, um, so my friend who's Swiss said that. Uh, people, they had a problem with people r- rushing to, to train windows, right? So they had to physically create um, the sort of infrastructure for a queue, one of those, you know, rails to force people to wait. People still would ignore them, climb over them, whatever. <laughs> so what they did was they posted a notice explaining to people why it was in their interests to line up, which is to say you actually, on balance, save time if you wait politely and less bad stuff goes down, right? So, um and then people even objected to that. They were like, you know, why should we have to, why should we have to, uh, you know, wait after other people? There's some, you know, politician who made that a, a thing for a while. But so, I've always so found that weird. So when it's viewed as like anti-egalitarian, they don't, they think the line is sort of um, high, too hierarchical? I don't understand. What? Yeah, I don't, I don't understand Swiss natu- national identity or culture very well. And I, I mean, there's not a ton of writing about this, but I mean, it could just be that people don't like change right well, well dave like you, you've come to the right place because we have <laughs> we have more swiss listeners than north dakotan listeners wow that's <laughs> uh, exciting um so so we might find an answer to this i actually had two questions about this like yeah. one is that that the way you describe the um kind of geographic dispersion of line preferences didn't seem to me at least on an initial glance to line up with what i would expect about like authoritarian orientation or mm-hmm. affinity for collectivism um yep. And that was surprising to me. I would I would have expected the more authoritarian cultures to be more in favor of of lining up, and the more kind of um, uh, and, and the and the more individualistic cultures to be less in favor. But it doesn't seem to work that way at all. No, um, no, no. There's it, actually something called the power distance index. Have you guys heard of this? No. no. 
Okay, so this is one way that people measure sort of preferences for um, or tolerance of authoritarianism in cultures. And so if in cultures that have a uh, larger power distance, you have uh, more deference to authority, um, you have, you know, less uh, rebelliousness, et cetera, et cetera. What, what, um, is, what is power distance measure? Does it measure those things or is it a measure which correlates with those things? Do you know? Oh, yeah. No, I'm sure it's a measure that correlates for those things, right? Okay. So it's trying to aggregate. So, and, and I haven't thought about this in a while, so this is going to sound very rusty. But yeah, um, so countries like uh, in, a power, in a country with a high power distance index, you would find a toleration for, uh, say, authoritarian government at a greater level. Um, and you would also find that people were, say, less likely to talk back to their boss in a workplace setting, right? So a high power distance country would be like, Japan and a relatively low one would be the United States. But the weird thing is, and, and so one conjecture of lines was, well, maybe lines somehow co correlate to this, but it's actually all over the map and sometimes even reversed. So for example, um, England has a very low power distance index, but they're very, very into lines, right? Which seems like it would be um, the opposite, right? You would imagine that, that people would be very deferential to lines in a country uh, that had uh, a high power distance index, but that doesn't turn out to be true. So yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I don't think there's much of a correlation. There's also not much of a correlation with um, scarcity, right? So some of the most organized and respectful lines have emerged under conditions of complete deprivation, right? Like the my favorite article I think that I read in doing this was a study of a Nigerian petrol queue in the late 1970s, where there was you know a huge oil crisis, no gas, and in a country that was riven by both, uh, you know, poverty and uh, like ethnic and social stratification, people were completely respectful of lines. And it wasn't like, you know, the local uh, power broker got to skip the line. It's like, you know, everybody waited with, you know, a very egalitarian sensibility. So hmm. yeah, that cultural correlation, I find difficult to explain. Yeah. And the, um, I remember being um, as a high school student in Madrid and like, uh, I think it was like 19... 89 or 90 um and you know going up to an ice cream i don't know it's an ice cream stand or something like that and there were all these you know people <clears throat> we were trying to stand in line and people were just pushing their way through and yeah and then people were just kind of yelling yelling and and i didn't <laughs> understand all of it and finally people were smiling and say no let the americans come through they don't understand basically right you know and, and so we were able to order it. and and so part of it was like you know that didn't seem to correlate either with the uh kind of authoritarian individualism thing but but also if if that's if some cultures develop access to goods that way doesn't it cast in, in into some doubt or at least it makes you maybe think more deeply about whether uh the reciprocity norm is really at work on a deep level mm -hmm. and, and and secondarily whether the reciprocity norm if it's functioning is like an evolutionarily imprinted tit for tat you know what I mean? Like it, yeah. like tit for tat works, and so the selection, natural selection works, and reciprocity develops as basically a tit for tat strategy, which is like psychologically embedded. But even, forget, you know, I'm not competent to really to talk about that, but um, and, and you know, with any confidence, but um, whatever the mechanism, it seems like reciprocity doesn't explain why you don't see that in Switzerland or or Spain, where I was, or other places. Yeah, I mean, I think the one thing that I've I found difficult in this paper to account for is is that very question, which is so. Lior Strzelovitz has this clever phrase he calls a reciprocity cascade, and there's sort of a threshold beyond which, when people observe a degree of cooperation, they then cooperate as well. So, you know, I think in the paper we can explain why, in the presence of 
cultural norms that result in a lot of lining up. Other people find that signal of cooperation compelling and they line up regardless of some kind of cost benefit. Well, I think regardless of sort of a traditional cost benefit type of homo economicus calculations. What's harder to explain is why that norm arises in some instances and not others. And here, I just I just don't have a good story yet. And it's partly because it seems like so discontinuous across world cultures. But one thing uh, that the sort of claim of the paper is limited to is I can, I'm pretty confident that to say that when people observe lines, our instinct for reciprocity leads us to cooperate with those lines, right? Whether those emerge in the first place and how those emerge, I think is a much harder and murkier story. But yeah. if, no, if no one else is lining up, right? Then the reciprocity story would predict the opposite, which is, hey, I'm not going to be a sucker and wait patiently. I am going to uh, engage in the same kind of behavior as everyone else. And if they're mobbing up, I'm going to mob up, right? When you, how do you translate from mob to line is the difficult um, evolutionary story that I don't, I don't think the paper so, is capable of taking on. Yeah. So is, is it an evolutionary thing or is it, or is it that um, if it's really tit for tat, if it's really reciprocity, then how a system develops is really dependent on initial conditions, mm-hmm. um, right? And so it's it's like a you know, in, it's like a chaos phenomenon, right? Where you nudge it a little bit in one direction, it goes one way, and another way, it goes another way. And so, yeah. uh, if it's really tit for tat, then it's like uh, starting, you know, if, if 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 line forming becomes a thing, then over time that only becomes more rigid, right? And if yep. non-line forming becomes a thing, if uh, then it's very hard to get line forming started because everybody is tatting, right? Rather than titting. Yeah. I don't yeah. know if those are, <laughs> is yeah. tatting and titting, are those words? <laughs> it's like there's sort of the rate, what's the, what's the base rate of defection versus uh, cooperation? Yeah, and in the paper you call this like defection cascades and cooperation cascades. But I'm talking like about right? it's a reciprocity cascade and a defection avalanche. Yeah. But, a, but within, um, what I'm saying is within a population at a given time, it could be that the ratio of defectors and cooperators is such that it's very hard for the thing to get off the ground. Right, right. right. And so it could be that our, like, so there's that sort of, I don't know if I have this um, version of the paper, but in one of Kahan's articles about this, he has sort of a helpful bell curve, you know, Gaussian distribution of people's preferences. And most people are fairly inert. You know, they'll just cooperate when they see cooperation, they'll defect when they see defection. But there are some people who are outliers, right? So they will never cooperate. They will always cooperate. Or they're just sort of primed to cooperate at a, uh, for, for fewer, in the presence of fewer signals. Or they're primed to defect in the presence of less defection. And it could be that that's the thing that is discontinuous across societies that explains why lines emerge robustly in like Sweden and England, but not so much in mainland China. Perhaps you, you mean because the distribution of personality types is different. Could be. I mean, that, I, you did have that in the paper, and I, yeah. And you know, if I had to guess, I, you know, maybe, maybe just you know, um, kind of like island biogeography, right? That that yeah. you yeah. isolated populations develop differently in terms of their distribution of these things. Um, it could be. I, I would think that you know, my guess is it has more to do with initial conditions, right? That this is a very precarious phenomenon line yep. forming and it, it's it's a very fragile thing but yes but, but it's strengthened by its practice right yes and I it's, think and it's I think weakened by its non-practice yeah yeah right? i think there's sort of like it's almost like there's like a a, a momentum to the practice right and then right. once it gets rolling downhill although here's my my guess is that i think it tends to be um 
more fragile than it is strong. Because I think that, you know, people tend to defect in the presence of cooperate of, of a, a little bit of defection, you know, to the extent that it's visible. Now, lines may actually be a bit of an exception to this, right? For the reasons I give in the paper, sometimes I think defection is just masked. But my impression of lines is that they're pretty fragile. And the reason I think this is that there are so many examples of where lines sort of in a little bit of defection just causes them to collapse, right? So the two examples are the way that people at the threshold of the stores after waiting for hours on Black Friday will go from polite reciprocators to savages who trample over <laughs> old ladies, right? There's like, there's a website that tracks the number of trampling deaths on Black Friday and it's oh. like not a small number. Yeah. And then there's a really yeah. interesting example in China of where an Apple store said to people in mainland China, you need to line up, right? Where, and, and China, mainland China anyway, not Hong Kong so much, is one of the cultures in which line norms are weakest. Um, which is not surprising then that there was enough defection that it led other people to defect. And there was like a full scale riot with people like, you know, trying to throw bricks through the uh, Apple store window. Right. And the only story that goes in the opposite direction is the Nigeria story, because it wasn't all, it wasn't that people magically formed a line when the gas shortage happened. Originally there was chaos. Right. But what was interesting, and I don't know anything besides what's in the article. And I'd love to sort of be able to have observed this. Um, and maybe there's a way to do this is that, somehow that chaos turned into extremely well-ordered and largely egalitarian lines. And that process, I think, would tell us a lot about what the initial conditions are that cause chaos to lead to lines. Because we can kind of understand the opposite phenomenon, right? People are always sort of on the brink of some mob mentality, but it's the opposite that I think is more interesting. Is it? Is it? Um, so one hypothesis, and this is just a guess, uh, like... <laughs> pretty much like everything I say on the show, but uh, this is just a guess. Um, if the person providing the good has an opportunity to shut things down, mm. you know, that's like, you know, if, if it gets out of control, I can basically reset everything and we can try again. So the initial conditions get reset. So I don't know if it's, the, if that's what happened in Nigeria or if that's what happened with the gas shortage in the United States. But um, so if you need the cooperation of the goods provider and that person observes things are going haywire and people aren't just going to break into the store and steal everything or, or, or pump all the gas out of the pumps, then like until there's order, we're not going to do anything. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you basically, you, you're able to run the uh, system several times until finally you get to a line system. And then once you get a line system, it becomes more and more powerful the longer it's practiced. That'd yeah, be one guess, but I don't yeah, know. Yeah, no, that's interesting, right? So it's a completely different explanation than reciprocity, right? Because it suggests that regardless of people's instinct to defect or put you to the front of the line, what they're really doing is deferring not to one another, but to like a central authority. Well, so it's sort of like a top-down law explanation that emanates not from the state, but from some central organizer who's using the the, you know, the threat of removing access to the good as a way to force people to stay in line. No, I, I mean, I don't think it, well... I don't think it necessarily needs to be like Austinian in the way you describe in the paper, right, of, uh, you know, orders backed by threats. It, it can mm. be, um, it's just that you need someone with a power to kind of reset the system. Mm. And, and so the point is that, uh, that people's uh, reciprocity will drive them to cooperate when other people are cooperating. And if they're not cooperating, then they will defect. But every time a, a bunch of people defect, the, you know, the person who's in charge of allocating the good kind of resets the system. Mm. And, and then but but once people start to cooperate in the in the very kind of initial conditions 
then you get a lot of knock-on cooperation because that's the way people are wired up. Right. And right. that's yeah, when the yeah, system yeah. is allowed to proceed, right? So it's kind of a combination of a person who who doesn't have the power who doesn't have the power over the psychology of the people necessarily, but has the power to reset back to initial conditions. Um, yeah. I yeah, don't know. Yeah. I, it's just a thought. It's right. like so learning to so- drive stick. Like you 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 keep trying to get it into first gear. Eventually, you do, and you manage how to continue, you know, like smoothly shift the gears. But right. That those first several times, it's like, nope, that didn't quite work. Nope, got to try it but again. But nobody's punished. It's not like anybody's going to jail. Right. It's just we're going to start again. We're going to start yeah. again. We're going to start again. Because the chaos thing doesn't work, so we'll just we'll try yeah, it again tomorrow. It's, it's the Monte Carlo simulation theory of <laughs> of, of lines, I guess. But hmm. um, but but it would be consistent with with your theory, Dave. Right? Yeah. That it is really reciprocity. It is. It is human nature, which is driving the uh, interpersonal react. Uh, um, you know, because really, you're in, in a line. Your your interactions are, are binary, like with, with other individual people, right? And those individual interactions add up to order or to chaos. And every time there's chaos, boom the the uh, uh, the person who's distributing the good hits the reset button, right? And yeah. eventually, you get a little bit of order. And, and the and your theory is that once you get a little bit of order, you get a lot of order. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. So it doesn't matter. So I think the two points like, yes. And I think this sort of signals the modest, the necessary modesty of my thesis. I can only sort of like make a claim as to what happens when we have the initial condition of a line or we don't. Right. I can. So I try to explain those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, the startup story. I mean, I think that conjecture is as good as anything. But then, yeah. So assuming that, you know, the distributor of the good is able to you know, reset or, or do it the, the way I described, which is to say, make access to the condition or access to the good condition on lining up or whatever. Once you begin to have enough of a line that people perceive cooperation to be signaled, then it doesn't matter why we got there, right? Reciprocity should lead people to instinctively want to cooperate once the signal is strong enough, yeah, exactly. regardless of, regardless of the, the story. And that's why I, you know, whenever I talk about this paper, I'm like, look, you know, there, there's really two stories here. There's emergence and there's maintenance, right? Mm-hmm. This paper is a paper about maintenance in the presence of initial conditions, right? They're not perfectly separable, right? Because sometimes lines, you know, degrade or form even within cultures that don't have strong norms, but largely I'm talking about the latter, not the former. We, wow. should, we should stop. But let me uh, let me ask you this, Dave. Is, is there anything else about this paper that you think we should highlight? Or or do you have a preview of something that you're working on that emerges out of this that you'd like to... Okay. I, I, listeners, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I want to say two more things. So the first thing, I think this is Christian's point, but he was like, you know, why don't we see... This is from a while ago. Why don't we see people who are in an uncomfortable line running into CVS and getting a piece of paper and like writing down <laughs> people's names, right? Why don't we <laughs> right. see that? My answer to that is we do. Right. And those, that's the Duke basketball example. That's uh, what people, what paid line waiters have done, uh, you know, in certain kinds of lines at the Supreme Court. That's what people did in a lot of the Star Wars lines. I think the reason we don't see that terribly often is that it takes someone who is willing to be the sort of norm yeoman, right, who is going to like do that, right? And there were, they call this person colorfully the line Nazi in apparently certain uh, lines for, for live music, right? Oh. But someone's, someone's got to actually do that. And they're only going to do it where I think they're, the, the, val, the, the line is um, high investment enough, which is to say the good is valuable enough or the line is long enough that it's worth the effort to do it. Right. Um, in the, the context of like the U2 line, it seems that the people who are willing to do that work are getting some kind of community status for it. CF the roller derby paper. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but I, I mean, I think that when you have 
simple and quick lines, right? You don't have much of an incentive to do it. And the benefits are relatively low. Um, so you just don't have people making the effort to do it. But there are contexts in which people are willing to take on that work. There's the kids at Duke who, um, who their extracurricular appears to be helping to manage the lines for the Duke basketball games. And you can <laughs> go gonna, on the we're, website. We're going to include a link to this. Uh, we'll yeah. include a link to this thing because it is like incredible. Like, you know, these like freshly scrubbed, smiling faces of these kids. <laughs> and it's like, you know, what did you spend your college years doing? Was it the school newspaper? Was it debate? Was it, were you a, a basketball player? It's like, no, man. What I chose to do was help to manage the lines. And, and this is not my culture. And I'm sure a, a listener from Duke would think that it's outrageous that I would ever be skeptical that this is a valuable thing to do. But I get it. Obviously, basketball is a huge thing at that school. But the but that's just the point, which is that when the, the good people are waiting for is something that's so valuable that it makes the line as a proxy for that good more valuable, then you get this sort of elaborated quasi administrative structure that arises around it. Hmm. Um, so that's one thing. The second thing is, um, what, where does this, where does this go? Um, and so there are at least two things that I'm thinking about doing. One is I have a colleague who actually has like a PhD in sociology and would be competent to do such a study who I'm trying to sell on the idea of doing the Felix Oberholzer G study, which I cite mainly in part three in a way that would get the answers that I don't think that study gives. Right. So that's a study that, um, is very interesting, but he essentially uh, has uh, you know the people who he's, he's hired to do the study approach others in line and offer to pay them to let the the offeror cut in, right? And he finds the interesting result that people decline the money, but they often permit the cut, perhaps on the theory that they assume that there's some kind of distress or necessity, right? So the reason that I don't think this study works, oh, but there's ter- another there's another aspect to that, isn't that? Yeah. Or is this the Milgram study where the Maybe it's the Milgram one where uh, uh, the people who – the Confederates, the people who know it's yes. a study and you pay to join uh, – that you either pay or you or volunteer. But they're the ones that you were telling, hey, go offer these people money to break in line. Uh-huh. Those people feel terrible, right? Yes, right. Yeah. It's very hard to get them to do it, right? And so, yeah, that's one of my favorite things about what ended up being Milgram's last study is that the Confederates themselves ended up being something that he observed because it took them up to a half an hour to actually – but what they were doing <laughs> in the Milgram study was different. They were just cutting into the line, right? So we have oh, a right. study yeah, about, yeah, 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 yeah. about pure line intrusion, which is scary when you imagine it. There's, there's a couple of those. We have a study about pay to cut, but we don't have a study about pay to pay to replace, right? So I could imagine that if somebody said, hey, I'll give you 50 bucks to let me cut in front of you, I would say not worth it. I don't want to have to deal with flack from all the people in back of me. But if you said, let me pay you for your space in line as a bargain for exchange, right? I don't think the, I think that's a very different question to pose to people. So I'm trying to figure out whether I can convince someone unlike me, who's qualified to do this study to work on that with me. Is, I is, think, is there a pay to replace study where you study the person that you have asked to pay to uh, replace? It, like, no, but I think that's what I, I want to know. I think, be, I think you could do both like Milgram did, right? You could yeah. observe yeah. how people react in terms of like whether they accept or deny the offer and at what level and under what conditions. But then you could also observe the person who's who's offering the money, right? And I think this is the most, of the three things, this is the one I would feel most comfortable doing, even though I imagine myself doing it, it's still awkward, but it's a lot better than just shoving my way into line where you can get your butt kicked, right? <laughs> that's so that's, that's one thing. The second thing I'm thinking of doing is a paper um, called Law and Waiting, which would just be, because there's all this great literature on waiting and why people hate it. And I, it occurred to me that law makes us wait all the time, right? Yeah. So 
Law makes you wait to buy a gun or get an abortion. Uh, law effectively makes you wait to vote or to get certain amenities like at the DMV. Apparently, an international law friend told me that states often have to wait before exiting multilateral treaties. You could regard prison as a form of waiting. So I think the idea of waiting as uh, a notion that sort of transects all hmm. over uh, different kinds of substantive subfields of law would be interesting because I don't think it's a way we've thought about what law does. And there's a lot of, I mean, literature that waiting is sort of a uniquely unpleasant um, kind of coercive, uh, costly experience. So that's a sort of, that's, that's the other project I think might grow out of this. Maybe, maybe you should call it uh, the coercion of patience. Hey. Yeah, coerced patients. I yeah, like it. something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Forced oh, patients. Yeah. So my my These two my two ideas are first um, that in the study of buying people's place in line, um, mm-hmm. that I hope you'll have one of the conditions in the study be um, uh, going up to two people who are adjacent in line uh, and asking them uh, which of you will take less. Uh, than uh, the other to give me your space, and why don't you two just compete right now? <laughs> uh, and I'll give whichever one of you will take less than the other. The antitrust professor in me likes that even scenario. You'd be perceived to be as even more of a jerk. Yeah, it's so than, douchey, it's unbelievable. Right, but um, that's the whole thing, isn't so, it? Right, yeah, and, and I would yeah. love to see the results of that. Um, uh, you know, for example, how many of those uh, experimental uh, people administering the experiment were actually beaten to death almost on the just, spot. Almost right. just stating that experiment is uh, is an argument against Barrows' knee defender thing, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just because sh- you've just shown, like, by taking it to the next step, you've just shown what's ridiculous about it right. in a way, right? Yeah. So, and the other thing is, um, you know, they, they say that, um, that it really the, the strongest form of patriotism is when you're willing to critique the country that you love to... Show the way that it could be better. Um, and here's, and here's where it, why why do you hate America, Joe? And I don't hate I don't hate America, but I but I I but I uh, I grieve for America. Oh boy, um, because I know that not everyone in America has yet read this paper. <laughs> oh, and okay. I think that's a terrible thing about America right now. But that's why we are America's faculty colloquium. <laughs> Even though America says that they don't want a faculty colloquium, <laughs> we're here to give it to them. I can't believe there's not great demand in this country for more faculty colloquia. <laughs> I'm shocked by that. They're, they're, they're usually so great. Well, all we count on is minimal demand <laughs> to make this work. Uh, but this was a fantastic paper and a great discussion. So great. Thank you so, so much for joining us. And uh, hey, I really enjoyed it. Next, next, when you when you take the next steps, we'll have you back again. Right on. Sounds great. Take care, care, Dave. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Okay. Bye. Bye.